Okay, good morning. I'm happy to see you guys. I have been sick all weekend long. I'm so sick that I'm using the original flavor of Fisherman's Friends. Are you with me? Like, you know it's bad when you're going with that thing. Hopefully, I end up sounding a little bit better than I feel this morning, but I am looking forward to today's message as we continue this We Are series. So last Sunday, somebody uh, came to Amber and I, and they pulled us aside after the service and said, can we talk privately? And we're like, yeah, sure. So we popped up to my office and we sat down and that person proceeded to tell us that they were leaving the church because they were greatly disturbed by the first message in this We Are series. They told me that it was critical. It was mean-spirited. It was divisive. They told me that I was preaching my personal opinion instead of words that were given to me by the Holy Spirit. So I was like, wait, 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 okay. How do you know that what I was preaching that Sunday was my opinion and not from the Holy Spirit? And their exact reply to me was, well, the God I believe in is a God of love. And I could never imagine Jesus getting up in front of a crowd and saying something like you said. Now, in that conversation, okay, there were a lot of things that I found frustrating. Some of them were my fault and responsibility and I had to take ownership for. But the thing that frustrated me the most was that final sentence that I just shared with you. Well, Jesus would never say anything like that because how many of you guys know Jesus often brought the heat whenever he preached? Like, no lie, there are tons of his sermons that are full of like straight up hellfire and brimstone. You, you read them and you're like, whoa, okay. Jesus was serious that day. Like he was not playing around, okay? So what I thought we would do today is we would actually look at the most combative and confrontational sermon that Jesus ever preached. Now, before we get there, I need to be really clear. This sermon today is not a reaction to the conversation last week. I'm not like, all right, well, let's see about that. That's not it at all. You can ask our staff, I actually prepare our sermons like six months in advance. So it just so happens we were already planning on talking about this, and then some of the issues that it addresses were surfaced in the last week. So I'm not like subtweeting anybody today, okay? I just need you to stay with me, understand that, okay? What we're going to do, though, is we're going to look at this most confrontational sermon that Jesus ever preached. And I'm going to be real with you. He is going to step on some toes. I'm not going to offend anybody today, okay? I'm going to get out of the way and let Jesus do all the offending, because this this is a sermon that is def- it's designed to confront, to afflict, even to offend in a certain way. But here's the deal. Sometimes we need that. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't need to be a steady diet of that. You don't need a preacher that's going to come up here every single Sunday and tell you what a horrible person you are. But you know what? Every so often, we just need somebody to tell us the truth. If we are going to be the people that God intends for us to be. So we're going to start reading Matthew chapter number 23. We're going to read about two-thirds of Jesus' sermon today. We're going to skip the intro because, like, honestly, the intro is mostly filler anyway, typically in sermons, not in Jesus, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. We're going to jump in about a third of the way into the message, and I just, I'm going to let his words speak for themselves. He says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let other people enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites? 
You cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell that you yourselves are. Woo! Okay, I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. Because if I had said those words two weeks ago, none of y'all would have been here today. You know what I'm saying? You would have been out the door. Jesus was willing to share hard truths. He was willing to confront people when they needed to. Now listen, who he confronts and why he confronts them is going to be key to understanding everything he says in this sermon. So in this message that he's delivering, this is a public message, it's a mixed crowd. So he's got like his disciples, his 12 are there with him. There are a bunch of randos from the town that are listening in. And then there are these religious people, people who are very confident in their spirituality. They act like they've got it all together. They've got God figured out. And you know, it's just like that kind of person. And those are the ones that Jesus Jesus is speaking to in this passage. Jump on down to verse 23. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Wait, pastor, I thought tithing was just an Old Testament thing. I didn't think New Testament Christians had to do that. I don't know. Jesus said you should tithe, but we'll just leave it at that. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you're willing to swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you build tombs for the prophets that your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the the godly people that your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would never have joined them in the killing of the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started, you snakes, sons of vipers. How will you escape the judgment of hell? I read that and I'm like, well, so much for hippie Jesus. You know what I mean? So much for the all-inclusive, ever-tolerant Jesus that people seem to think existed. Yes, he was full of compassion. Yes, he was full of mercy, but he was also full of truth. He told people what they needed to hear. This sermon is a, it's a blistering critique of those who claim to be God's people, but are far from him in reality. It is an indictment of people who say that they are God's people, but they won't let anyone else become God's people as well. Now, look, there is so much in the sermon that we could dig into. I mean, I would have a lot of fun with it. But instead, what I want to do is I just want to focus on two verses, verse 27 and verse 28. And what I want to do today is I want to ask the question, are we real like, are we real? I've said in this series, what we're doing is we're taking a lot of these statements that we as a church would just say are a given. Like, we are friendly. We are welcoming. We are real. We are committed. We are biblical, whatever. And then we're just pausing for a moment 
and saying, but are we really though? And today I want to ask that question, are we real? When I say, are we real? I mean, are we honest about our sins and struggles? Is Connect Church a safe place for people who are hurting? People who are messy and imperfect? If somebody comes to our church, do they need to dress the part, look the part, talk the part in order to fit in? Like, do people need to be fake in order to belong? That's what we're talking about today. That was a major problem in Jesus' day. In fact, it was one of his greatest frustrations with the religious leaders in his time. In verse 27, this is the verse that I said I really want to hone in on this morning. He calls them whitewashed tombs. Now, this is a super powerful image that gets lost on us a little bit for a couple of different reasons. So what does he mean when he calls them whitewashed tombs? Well, you have to understand that in Jesus' day, they didn't bury people in cemeteries the way that we do today. You know, you you go throughout the city of Calgary and every so often, You'll see a beautiful piece of land and it'll have a nice little fence around it and it'll have green grass and all these beautiful trees and there'll be like a big arch over the gate and it says cemetery. And it's all of this visual evidence to let you know there's dead stuff inside. Now, dead stuff is kind of gross and it's not very pretty. So we beautify the outside so that, you know, we can kind of just deal with the fact that there's a bunch of dead people inside of there. Are you with me? I know people that won't even walk through a cemetery because they're just so freaked out by the fact that although it's nice and beautiful, there's a lot of dead stuff going on on the inside. When Jesus said they didn't do that, they didn't bury people under the ground. Instead, they had a different process. So Israel is a very rocky hillside kind of country. And what they would do in his day is they would take either naturally occurring caves or they would actually dig out caves into the hillside and they would bury dead loved ones inside of them. So they would lay a body on a slab inside of one of these caves like we have a photo of here. And after a couple of years, the body would completely decompose. Then the family members would go inside of the tomb. They'd gather up the bones of the person, put them in a little box called an ossuary. They'd set that on a shelf. And then when grandma died, we'd put her on the shelf and we would just keep going through the cycle. And so pretty soon, tombs in ancient Israel were full of dead people's bones. That's kind of the process. But if you look at this photo, one of the things that you might notice is that like, it's not immediately clear if the stone were rolled in front of the little opening there and stuff, you could easily walk up on that come in contact with the tomb and not even realize that it was a tomb. You with me? Like it might just look like a part of the hillside. And that was a problem because according to the ancient Jewish religion, if you came in contact with something that was dead or something that contained something that was dead, you were immediately unclean. It's not a sin to touch a dead thing or anything like that. But if you did, as a Jewish person in Jesus' day, you had to go through a purification ritual. And the purification ritual would take time. It might take a little bit of money. And so So it was a huge inconvenience if you accidentally got too close to a tomb. So the Israelites came up with a solution. They started taking lime and they would paint it on the outside of the tombs. And then they would pour lime on the ground around the tomb so that it stood out from the surrounding hillside. Basically what it communicated is what like the big sign that says cemetery does in our modern world today. It says, this is a tomb. There's dead stuff inside. Don't get too close to it unless you're willing to deal with the consequences. 
They whitewashed their tombs. Now, eventually they were like, well, if we're going to paint them white, we might as well go ahead and decorate them a little bit fancier. And so they would put flowers on or little signs or whatever. It's not very different from what we do today. When somebody passes away, we buy them a super fancy headstone. And periodically we go by and we put flowers on them. And it's like, no matter what we do to the outside to make it nice and palatable and kind of sweet, on the inside, we know it's full of death and decay and rot. When Jesus looks at the religious people, particularly the religious leaders of his day, the imagery and the name that he calls them or the, the words that he uses to describe them, he says, you guys are pretty graves. That's what it means to be a whitewashed tomb. You're a pretty grave. You look real nice on the outside, but inside there's all sorts of bad stuff going on that really, really needs to be dealt with. Jesus confronts the religious leaders of his day by calling them whitewashed tombs or pretty graves. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. That's like a sick burn. You know what I'm saying? This is good stuff by Jesus right here. He is giving it to them, giving them the truth. I would say he murdered them with words, but according to Jesus, they're already dead. So it's like, I don't know, he desecrated their corpse or something. This was nasty stuff that he just, he laid on them. He called them out. His words here in Matthew 23, they serve as a warning, okay, that God sees what's really going on in our hearts and minds. My friends, we can fool other people by the way that we present ourselves. You know that, right? And like nowhere on earth does this happen more readily than at church where you show up, you put on your Sunday clothes. You know, that's why I don't dress up on Sunday mornings, right? Because I don't want anybody to feel like, ooh, I got to dress up. I got to look the part if I show up. We show up though, we put a smile on our face and we say, good morning, brother, how art thou? Good morning, sister. Yes, I am fine on this blessed day. And how are you? And it's like, we're fake. We're not real. Inwardly, every one of us is full of sin and problems and heartaches. And yet, on the outside, we got to look the part. We got to look right. We got to be fake in order to belong. Jesus confronts that. He says, Our Heavenly Father is not impressed by our masks and our facades. God cares about what's really going on in your heart. God does not want you to fake it until you make it. God just wants you to make it. It's a whole lot easier to just be real and honest, and that's what God desires. Now, the interesting thing, okay, is that the difference between these Pharisees and the sinners that Jesus is talking about, or we could put it in different terms, the differences between religious people and unreligious people, non-religious people. There's like literally only one difference in a sense. And the difference is that religious people claim there's a difference between them and non-religious people. Are you with me? It's like the only difference between the Pharisees and the sinners is that the Pharisees refused to admit that they were sinners. If they had done that, then they would have received God's mercy and they would have been transformed. I just know this because like I haven't always been a part of the faith. You know what I mean? I grew up in an unchristian home. There was a time I thought Jesus was a lie and God was stupid. And I know what it's like. I remember the thoughts that I used to have. Thank God I don't have those anymore. I hang out with a lot of non-Christian people. You know why? Because they're real. <laughs> anyway. What I've discovered and what I know to be true, some of you know this is true as well, is that non-religious people, they don't get mad that Christians sin. They really don't. They get mad that Christians pretend they don't sin. 
They get frustrated that we walk around like, we got it all together. We figured out the truth. Our lives are in good shape, unlike the rest of y'all. No, the problem is we pretend like we've got it all together when everybody but us knows that we don't have it all together. Can I really step on some toes for a minute? Okay, you asked for it. The non-Christian world hears us passionately fight for the sanctity of marriage. But they know that our divorce rate is exactly the same as theirs. Hypocrites. Whitewashed tombs. We act like we got it together. We say all the right things, but inside, we're full of the same decay and death and problems as everybody else. The, the non-Christian world, they hear sermons that are preached by pastors like me about the, the evil of greed and consumerism in our world. And then they open up Instagram or they look at the newspaper and they see stories of pastors that are caught embezzling money from their churches. Hypocrites. Sons of vipers, they're going to hell. You, we cannot put ourselves out there like we've got it all together. We're perfect. Everybody else is flawed. No, we are too. We're fake. We tell them, guys, you are blinded by the devil. That's why you don't believe in God. That's what scripture says, actually. Scripture specifically says this, blinded by the devil. And we tell them, you're blinded by the devil. And yet, We're the ones that are sharing QAnon conspiracies on Facebook. Who's blind? Who's the blind guide? According to Jesus, it was the religious leaders. Why? Because they thought as long as they looked the part, then everything was okay. But God is not concerned with how we present ourselves. God is concerned with the reality that we are hiding every single day. Many Christians... And look, maybe I'm talking about you. Maybe I'm not. I don't know. Many Christians have become whitewashed tombs, pretty graves. We have the appearance of godliness, but we deny the power. Everyone seems to know it except for these people. My friends, you do not have to be fake to fit in at Connect. You don't. This is a place where people can come and be honest about their eating disorders. This is a place where somebody can feel safe to voice their doubts and questions and fears about God. It should be commonplace for people to confess their addictions at our church. We should hear, I'm sorry, and I forgive you more here among this community than anywhere else in the world. This has to be a community in which people bring both their Sunday best and their Monday worst. And frankly, if you're going to show up, I'd rather you bring your Monday worst than your Sunday best. Because if you will bring your Monday worst, God actually might heal it. You might actually be set free from the things that you think are going to hold you down for your entire life. It's not until we get honest that we can start to experience healing. Can I give you an example of what I'm talking about? Like a very real example. Two weeks ago, we got a prayer request that was turned in. I'm actually going to put it here on the screen so you can read it with me. Very real prayer request. And this prayer request, when it came in, it simultaneously broke me and it blessed me, like at the same time, you know? So this is what the the person wrote. 
They said, I feel stuck. I feel the weight of a lifetime of depression grow in severity every damn day. I genuinely feel tired. I'm actually tired of life. I feel like a disappointment day in and day out. Honestly, I feel alone. It's a real request. I say it broke me because I hate the fact that so many people feel this way. This is not a one-off. This is like what we get every single week. That breaks me as a pastor. But what blesses me is that this person refused to be a whitewashed tomb. They refused to put on a smile and pretend like everything was okay. It is okay to not be okay. If you can't be honest and real at church, there is nowhere on earth that you can be. Let me tell you another reason this actually blessed me is that rather than being honest anonymously, this person signed their name on the front of the prayer request. They were sitting in the service this morning, first service. So we were able to contact them and say, hey, we got your prayer request and we want to we wanna walk with you. We want to pray with you. We want to be here for you. And so we, I've been in contact with them every day for the last week. And I am so excited to tell you that they've experienced some major breakthroughs in their life. Major breakthroughs. And the reason that they had a breakthrough is because they were willing to be real. They were willing to open up and share the things that we've all got going on in our hearts and minds. We're just scared to talk about. This is what God desires from his people. Not perfection, but honesty. Not fake, but real. This is what God wants and this is what he offers to each one of us. Let me remind you what the scripture says. First John 1, 9, very famous verse says this, if we confess our sins to God, and this is what it's specifically talking about in prayer, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive all our unrighteousness. Not some, but all. It doesn't matter how big your secret is. It doesn't matter how long you've been hiding it. It doesn't matter how many times you've been caught up in it. If you confess your sin to God, he promises he will forgive all of your unrighteousness. But we tend to kind of overlook James 5.16, which is a similar verse. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Okay, don't miss this. When we get honest with God, we receive forgiveness. But when we're honest with each other, we receive healing. There are a lot of people that are here in the room right now and you've received forgiveness. You went to God with it and you said, God, I'm sorry. This thing's been holding me down. I'm asking you to forgive me. But you've never actually received healing from it because you've kept it a secret. You've held it in. How many of you guys know we are only as sick as our secrets? Once we confess, once we expose, once we're real about the struggles that we have had or we continue to have, we can start to overcome them. You cannot address what you will not acknowledge. And so God calls us to confess our sins to one another so that we can finally, fully be healed. Now, as the pastor, I told you the question that um, I'm asking this week, and I hope we'll all ask is, are we real? And one of the, one of the um, criteria that I use to evaluate, are we real as a church? One of the questions that I'll ask in response to that is this, are people confessing their sins only to the pastors or to one another? 
You with me? Only to the pastors or to one another. Because like I have people all the time, they come to me and they say, pastor, I've never told anybody about this. Why not? Well, I'm afraid of what people are going to think. People love you. They want to help. They want to be there for you. So the question I want to ask and consider is like, are people only confessing to the pastors because that feels safe? Or are they confessing to one another? You remember James 5.16 doesn't say, confess your sins to the pastors and you will be healed. It says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. So if, if, if the pastors, okay, so like uh, some church traditions, you have to go to the priest in order to confess and receive forgiveness, okay? That's not the biblical model. I'll just tell you straight up. Um, what the biblical model is we confess our sins to one another and we confess our sins directly to God. We find forgiveness and healing. If you have to come to the pastors in order to confess your sins and receive healing, you guys are in trouble because there are four pastors and there's about 700 people that attend our church each month. So like, there's no, even if I spent all day in a confessional every day, there is no way that I could hear all of the issues and problems that you guys are having. Even if our staff spent all of that time, there's no, we would unfortunately let some of you guys fall by the wayside. We just couldn't be there like that for all of you. But here's the good news. The people in the pews or the chairs around you have the exact same spirit of God inside of them that I do. Do you realize that? They have the exact same Bible that I have in order to encourage, challenge, and give you wisdom with. You know that like when I got ordained, they didn't give me the secret pastor Bible that has answers to all of life's questions at the back of the book. I didn't get one of those. I wish it existed, but it doesn't. No, instead, what the scripture offers us is the opportunity to be real and honest with one another, to share our lives with each other, to to confess our sins with one another, and to receive healing. You can find the exact same help from the people sitting in the audience as you can the people on the stage. This is what God offers us when he gives us the gift of the church. We don't want you to be limited by the capacity of the pastoral staff. And we want you to realize that you could be the solution to someone else's problem as they are the help and solution to yours. Now, I'm not saying that you need to put your business out in front of everybody in the church, okay? I'm not saying, so at the end of our service today, we're gonna put a microphone down here and I want you to come up and I want you to confess all of your sins in front of this room. (laughs) I'm not gonna do that. I wouldn't let you do that. I don't want you to come down front hold a microphone in your hand and say, whoo, I don't know how we got here, but we are $38,000 in credit card debt. And I don't know, man, I lay, way, I lay awake at night trying to figure out how we're going to pay the bills. And my husband and I, this is all we talk about anymore. We just argue about it. I don't want you to confess that to the whole church. It's not the right venue for it. You know what is the right venue though? Thursday nights, seven o'clock, Financial Peace University. Yeah. You'll be in a room of other people that have the exact same issues that you do trying to get free when it comes to their finances. You with me? Okay, I'm not gonna have you stand up in front of everybody in the congregation and confess your addictions or your lust or whatever it might be, but you should find somebody that you can be real with. You don't have to confess to everybody, but you need to confess to somebody. It's the only way that you're ever gonna find healing. Heck, even if you join like one of our social connect groups, you know what I'm saying, like games, board games, like come play Settlers of Catan, Make a new friend, and that might be the person that God uses to help set you free. Yeah. 
Relationships really are the key. Be, uh, the, the scripture says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. So the question we're asking today is, are we real? And I, I hope we are. We certainly should be. The world needs us to be. God takes the destructive power of sin so seriously. It's not about like, you're wrong and I'm mad at you for being wrong. God is our heavenly father and he's like, I don't want to see my daughter suffer anymore. I get upset when my sons are held down by things that they should have gotten over back in their teenage years. God hurts, he grieves when he sees his children suffer silently in this way. And that's why... In Matthew 23, Jesus goes on. So like, if you thought his sermon was already turned up to 10, he's about to bump that dial up to 11 before he winds down his sermon. Go back to the passage, Matthew 23. Let's read verses 34 and 36. So he's just gotten finished saying, snakes, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? So then he says this, verse 34, therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of the religious law. So it's kind of like, oh, good. Because like if Jesus sends the teachers, if Jesus sends the, the wise men, then they're finally, get, they're going to get their breakthrough. They're going to get it. Things are going to get right. Mm-mm. He says, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law, but you'll kill some by crucifixion and you'll flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. So in verse 35 and 36, he pronounces judgment on those people. He says, as a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time, from the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. Now, you've got to understand a couple of things here. The the things that he references, the murder of Abel, the murder of Zechariah, that happened a couple of thousand years earlier in history. It's not like the people he was talking to were the ones who caused those deaths. They didn't murder anybody. But what Jesus is saying is people who have the whitewashed tomb mentality, people who live their lives as pretty graves, people who look the part on the outside, but inwardly they are far from God. They are responsible for the same kind of death and destruction that led to the, uh, the demise of these men. And so he pronounces a judgment on them. And he's actually talking about something really specific. It's a prophecy. So Jesus spoke these words in about AD 33. Okay, that was the last year of his life. This was right before his crucifixion. And 37 years later, in AD 70, one of the most significant events in human history happened. So there were some Jewish people not associated with Jesus. There were some Jewish people that rose up in rebellion against the Roman Empire. And so the Roman general Titus gathered up the armies of Rome and he marched on the city of Jerusalem and he made war against the people of Israel. Over a million people died in that conflict. And when he finally breached the city walls of Jerusalem and conquered the Jewish people, he burned the entire city to the ground and then their temple, like the temple of God, he raised it. He demolished the whole thing all the way to the ground. He took all the valuable artifacts from the temple and brought them back to Rome and put them on display in their pagan temples. This was like The worst thing that had happened to the Jews in a very long time wasn't the last thing that happened to them badly, unfortunately, but you know, like they had this awful, terrible 
judgment before them. And that judgment, Jesus says, was as a result of their unwillingness to get real about what was going on. God judged them because they were fake and they wanted everybody else to be fake as well. Now listen, I get it that Jesus is supposed to be the nice guy. Jesus is their savior. Jesus is the one who came to rescue and redeem us. But rescue and redeem us from what? We've got to be rescued and redeemed from our sin. We've got to be rescued and redeemed from the judgment that will fall on our sin. God is merciful and just, yes and amen. And he is also holy and righteous. And he will not let sin go without dealing with it. You know what the book of Acts tells us? The book of Acts tells us God doesn't wink at sin. He's not like, ah, you cheeky little devils. Look at you down there. Stop being so mischievous. No, when he sees the hurt and the heartache, when he sees the violence and the abuse that we do to one another, he's angry, he's righteous. And he says, I'm not gonna let this go unpunished. And so hear me now, like again, some of you are not coming back next week. That's okay. I'm telling you what I feel like God is telling me to tell you, okay? Just as Jesus warned the people in his day that there are things on the inside of our hearts that need to be dealt with, or eventually they will cause our downfall. God will judge those of us who hold on to our sin. I would not be a good pastor if I didn't offer to you the exact same warning. Statistically speaking, there is somebody or actually multiple people in our church right now that are committing adultery. You need to knock it the heck off. You need to confess your sin. You need to repent and pray to God that you have a very forgiving spouse. It is time to get this right or you're going to lose your family. I don't know why you think it's okay to play with fire, but it's not. There are those of us. It's not just you. It's everybody. It's all of us. And we've got secret addictions, things that have enslaved us and entangled us for years and years and years. And I'm just telling you, if you refuse to deal with it, eventually it's going to catch up with you. You're going to end up answering for it. There are people in our church and they've started to to dabble in new age beliefs and the occult and different things like that. I'm just telling you, if you don't submit every area of your life to the lordship and grace of God, then eventually you will deal with the consequences of your actions. This is the warning that Jesus gives in his sermon. And if we're going to be real, we got to be real. We got to be honest. Now, Here's the good news, okay? Jesus doesn't end his sermon this way. (laughs) He doesn't end it by like, turn or burn, okay? He ends it on a message of hope. Oh, man, this is such a powerful, powerful verse here. In in verse uh, 37, verse 37, Jesus, he looks out on the crowds. You know, he's been talking to the religious people of his day, and now he looks on all the randos and his own disciples and he's just like the people and he sees them he sees their pain he sees the difficulties they're going through this is what he says he says "Ah, Jerusalem Jerusalem 
You're the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. But how often I wanted to gather your children together as a mother hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. See, what God wants is not to judge, not to condemn. What God wants is to forgive and heal. God actually wants to set you free. He wants you to have a joyful marriage. He wants you to overcome your depression. He wants you to be free from the debt collector's calls. He wants you to know that he loves you and has a good plan for your life. But you cannot address what you will not acknowledge until you're real, until you confess it to him and to trusted people in the body of Christ, you're never gonna be set free. He says, I wanna give you the same intimacy, the same protection and the same love that a mom gives to her children. I want that kind of relationship with you, God says, but there's a problem. He says, although I've wanted to do this every day, you wouldn't let me. Now look, I'm pretty reformed in my theology and I'm all about the sovereignty of God, but Jesus says something here that we cannot ignore. That God extends an invitation for grace, forgiveness, healing, and freedom but we're only gonna get it if we say yes. It's not until we accept it and receive it that we will get to experience it. And so my hope and prayer is that you're not like these people and you won't keep God at a distance. You won't prevent him from showing you the love and grace that he wants to, but instead you would say yes even today, you would say yes to Jesus and his good plan for your life. So I'm just going to invite everybody in the room, bow your heads, close your eyes. I just want to give you the chance because I believe somebody is ready for that today. I'm going to invite you to just say these words in your heart after me. Dear Jesus, I need you to come into my life and make me whole. I need you to make me alive. I need you to set me free. I need you to forgive me and I need you to give me new purpose and joy. Thank you for your free gift of salvation. Amen. My friends, if you prayed that for the very first time today, healing has begun. It's not immediate. It's not like you're a brand new person. You're not going to have any problems anymore, but healing has begun. This is the start of a lifelong journey with God. And we want to be there to help you. There are two ways that we can do that. One is immediately following our service today. Our prayer team is actually seated right over here. And I, I just believe there's somebody that's like, I need somebody to pray for me right now. I need to be honest or maybe I'm not even ready to confess yet, but I just need prayer. You can meet these two ladies in the gray shirts right over here. They would be very happy to pray for you. Second thing is we pointed your attention to that connection card that's in the seat in front of you. There's a place on there for you to mark that you made a decision. And the reason that we ask you to do that is so that our staff can pray for you. And then if there are any resources or questions that you might have, we can help get those things into your hands, okay? All right, look, I, uh, next week's gonna be a little lighter, okay? Okay, I designed this message series to kind of rise and fall in intensity. And so next week's going to be a little bit nicer, but I love you. Thank you, Siri. I love you. More importantly, God loves you. And if somebody says they love you, but they won't tell you the truth. If somebody says they love you, but they won't call you out on your BS. If somebody says they love you, but they're not willing to walk with you through the hardest parts of life, 
they are not being real. And by God's grace, I want Connect Church to be real.